0: You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 79. Today we're asking the question, how do new employees learn about safety? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name is Drew Ray. I'm here with David Proven. We're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and have a look at the evidence surrounding that question. So, David, what are we talking about today?
1: True, today we're going to look at young workers who have just started a new job. It's uh, well known that young workers have higher injury rates and one of the studies cited in the literature review for this paper uh, from Denmark found that young male and female workers under 30 were between 60 and 70% more likely to be injured at work. So I suppose in industry and in the literature there's lots of possible explanations for this. Is it the type of work that they do? Is it the type of businesses that people work in? Or is it different attitudes towards risk? One of the key problems is is just a lack of experience in the job, the knowledge and skills that people need to keep safe. We're talking about young workers new to role. So brand new workers uh, aren't as good across all aspects of their job. And uh, we know that safety is uh, emerges from the way that work gets performed. So it uh, stands to reason that if a worker is not as experienced across their work, then safety outcomes or negative safety outcomes may be a result of that. So Drew, businesses have lots of arrangements and lots of different arrangements in place to get new workers up to speed with doing the job well, and doing the job safely. So in this episode, uh, we're going to look at how those arrangements work and what we can do to help new employees learn how to be safe.
0: So David, I don't know if you can remember your first job when you were a new young worker. For me, it was going to work at a department store. I remember the sort of usual thing where you get sat down in the break room and you're shown training videos. I was then shadowing uh, current workers around this particular one, they had a haberdashery session where they sort of learned the correct way to fold towels to sit on a shelf and how to measure out material to sell to people. And then I got transferred to the store I was actually working in. And so my very first day on the job was totally untrained, wandering around the car park, collecting trolleys with no sort of gear or safety equipment. It was just that they hadn't arranged a contract for collecting trolleys. So that was my job. How about Andrew? you when you started?
1: Yeah, Drew, look, um, we're going to talk about the retail industry today as one of three industries that we're going to talk about. And uh, my first role was uh, was stacking shelves within a, within a department store. And I also don't recall receiving any training. But one of the things I do recall was I was quite tall and the roof was quite high and the ladders weren't really big enough. So uh, regardless of what I may or may not have been told in my safety induction, I was the only one who could reach the roof to hang signs. Um, so that's all I re- That's all I recall about my, my first role. So regardless of what I was told in that induction or what I should have been doing, I was there to hang the signs however was necessary.
0: So I guess neither of us were really cut out for a successful career in retail. I, I also remember, and I, I have to be honest, I've got no idea if this story is true. I've just must have heard it earlier in my career and I've been repeating it ever since. During engineering school, we get constantly told how little we know. It's a bit of a myth, I think, that engineers come out of school thinking that they know everything. It's kind of the obvious op- op- opposite. We come out having been told that we know nothing and that things in the real world are going to be different. So this story is about a new graduate engineer, first day on the job, spends the first day in inductions and mandatory safety training, including you know, the usual message that if you see something's unsafe, don't work don't walk past it. Make sure that you tell the worker to stop, tell the superintendent get it fixed. And so that's the first half of the day is in the office getting that training. Second half of the day is out on his first site being given a tour by the superintendent. And so he's there with the superintendent and his boss from head office. And they walk around the site right past a worker, up a ladder, carrying tools, no safety protection, not a safe way to be working at heights. And to the graduate, this looks obviously unsafe, but he can't report it to the superintendent because the superintendent is standing right there with him saying nothing. And so the graduate spent years being told that his own training doesn't really match how things work in the real world. He's got to weigh up what he's just been trained about and what he sees right next to him, which is the supervisor doing nothing. And so he figures this is just one of those things where the training doesn't match the real world. He ignores it, walks on. And depending on how you tell the story, when they come back in the other direction, they find that the worker's is there with first aid and has fallen off the ladder. Yeah, as I said, I don't, don't know if the story is true, but I think the message of it kind of matches my own experience, which is that the safety training we get is aspirational. It sets a sort of standard that everyone knows you don't actually meet at work. It's not like a minimum standard where everyone does everything in the safety training. And so people really quickly realize that the reality is sort of somewhere between what the safety training says and doing things badly. There are lots of practical things that matter for safety that aren't in the training. And there's lots of things that are in the training that no one follows 100% of the time. So new workers are left trying to figure out this space, this sort of gap between the sort of formal idea of safe and the practical idea. Of how work gets carried out on a day-to-day basis.
1: Andrew, I think that maybe gap between the way that people are told or inducted for their work to happen and the way that they experience that work as they take those first few days and weeks in their organisation is true for for all roles in companies. So some of our listeners might, you know, have spent their career in professional roles and you know maybe you've been told what you're doing, what you're there to do, and been given a job description, and then you make sense of it over the first couple of weeks. I remember when I joined an organisation in a role, in a very senior safety role, I think I was at a meeting in my first week and the meeting was talking about this incident that had occurred and the conclusions that the organisation had drawn from that and being relatively new and listening to the the conversation, I spoke up and and said, took took actually took the action of speaking up, which is a bit different to that, that story maybe, Drew, but, but spoke up and said, look, I... I tend to disagree from what you've explained. I think I think there's some um, leadership challenges that we have that are creating some sort of undesirable cultural characteristics at that site. And then a very senior manager said, "Well, what do you know? You've only been here five minutes." And I've gone, "Okay, so this is the way this organisation works. It really doesn't want its safety people to uh, to challenge to challenge others." So, Drew, I think it's that 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 connection or disconnection between. The training instruction that we get when we first start and what we experience when we actually start doing the work.
0: Yeah, and I think as we're going to see from this paper, it's not as simple as the training is rubbish, we should just go with the practical experience. And it's also not as simple as the training is good and the practical
1: experience degrades the training. So Drew, do you want to introduce the, the paper that we're going to talk about today?
0: So the paper is called Safety Learning Among Newly Employed Workers in Three Sectors. A Challenge to the Assumed Order of Things. This is a Danish paper. Uh, The lead author is Dr. Regine Gritnes, a senior researcher in occupational medicine at Aarhus University in Denmark. Dr. Gritnes has published extensively about topics like apprentices, young workers, uh, leadership influence, particularly as leadership influence pertains to young workers. So this is obviously her field of Study is looking at this young worker experience. The paper is published in the journal Safety Science uh, in 2021. It's if you look at the actual date on the paper, it's been published in the future. I think it's published in something like October or November, um, but it's there right now, and you can download and read the whole paper for yourself because it's open access. David, do you want to take us through the method? It's fairly straightforward.
1: Yeah, the method is fairly straightforward, but um, but but I really like the the method that uh, this was was conducted for this research so there's three industries or three case studies or three industries the metal industry the elderly care industry or aged care industry in some parts of the world and the retail sector which um we referred to earlier so three industry sectors and so each case study involves several businesses i think drew there might have been 15 15 or so organizations in total across these three uh these three industries and about 10 younger workers in each of these industries. So they spent a few days, between two and three days, at each of these workplaces observing young workers in their first few days of their role. And they also did a whole range of interviews. I worked out about 95 interviews in total. Uh, 50 of those interviews were conducted with the young workers or, and new workers themselves. And uh, I think 45 or so of those workers were conducted with you know managers or um, or mentors, or trainers, or, or other colleagues in the workplace. So they really wanted to see and experience and understand how these new young workers were inducted into their work, and uh, and then how they experienced that work in the first few days, and then the experience of their colleagues, workers, supervisors, or managers in uh, in the the safety and the work and the role performance of of young workers. Andrew. What I really liked um was the very open nature of the questions that they asked in these in these interviews. So for example, just asking a worker the 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 broad open question, can you describe what happened on your first day of work?
0: Yeah, I really actually hope that they publish a couple more studies given the size of the data. All all through this paper there's lots of neat little examples of quotes and incidences that they observed that give it a really authentic feel. And they do a good job of not overgeneralizing it. So, very often when they present one idea, they'll say, yeah, but not everyone agreed with this particular idea. Some other people told us something different. So, it gets a good feel of the sort of range of different experiences people have in these different companies.
1: Yeah, Drew, what I also really liked about the design, and you can see it from the results because you mentioned generalization there, is they they, they observed and 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 heard. And had different findings from different industry settings based on different sort of work and, and organizational factors in those settings. So the tendency to just look at one industry and, uh, and come up with conclusions and then, uh, attempt to generalize those across all other industries. I think this is a good study of showing why that not, might not be a reliable thing to do with research.
0: Yeah. And certainly they found quite different patterns in the three sectors. So before we get into the data from the paper, I thought we might go through a few of the ideas that they talk about in the literature review, because I think these set some important context. The first bit is just talking generally about how people learn. And so they start off sort of explaining the very old fashioned view of learning, which is about uh, installing objective knowledge into the learners. So at school, you have knowledge uploaded into your brain, you go to work, you use that knowledge. Now, obviously that is very outdated, but remnants of that kind of thinking still sort of hang around in both the education sector and in the way we do training at work. But it was you know, back in the 1930s that we started to replace that idea with the idea of situated learning or experiential education. And the idea is that learning isn't about uploading knowledge, it's about creating a sequence of experiences. And each person in the experience. They reflect on that experience, they learn from that, it leads them on to new experiences. So you can think of teaching not as a job of providing knowledge, but providing students with classroom experiences that help them learn, reflect, and learn. And eventually, those classroom experiences take them onwards into real world experiences where they continue to build on the classroom experiences, continue to learn. So once you get out into an organization, the environment isn't created by teachers, the environment is created by all the other people around you. So learning becomes like a community process because we're all learning, we're all having experiences, and we're all creating the experiences that other people have. And you, know, some people are a little bit more deliberate about it than others. You know, It's possible to take control of your own learning, to deliberately seek out experiences. Often that's what happens when you have a mentor, is the mentor is guiding you into what sort of experiences do you need to have to build up. Your skills build up your understanding. And sometimes organizations are deliberate about it. They create spaces for people to either have particular experiences or time and space to reflect and learn from those experiences. So you can think of things like learning teams as deliberately creating that reflective component of learning. So all this stuff, whenever we do work, whenever we think about work, whenever we complain and argue about work, that's how the organization is maintaining and growing its own knowledge. And so what does that mean for young workers? It means that they're stepping into this community um, and they need to be brought in and become part of that community. So when we induct workers, it's not just about knowledge transfer it's not just about uploading the knowledge they need it's about how do we get them to start taking part in discussions and decisions and arguments and thinking about the way work happens
1: um, and so from drew this is um i think we we probably know this is on the job training as these creating these experiences i suppose we're seeing it more with different technology applications trying to even simulate some of these experiences with virtual reality um, and simulated environments and i think when we think about on on the job training what you've just said there is we're not just learning how to do the tasks, but we're learning the broader norms, practices, communication, relationships, and those other, maybe we call them norms or or shared understandings about not just the task, but about the broader context in which the tasks take place in that workplace setting.
0: I think a really good example of this that people might be familiar with is If you've ever watched a medical TV show, they get a lot of the medicine wrong. But one of the things that I think they capture really well, just for narrative effect, is the way a senior doctor will have a bunch of junior doctors around them, often like residents in training. And before they go into the patient's room, they'll stop and have a discussion and they'll say, okay, so what do we think we're going to see? What are we going to ask? If we see this, what will we do? What decision would you make, doctor? Um, as a way of sort of inducting people into the process of thought and the process of being a doctor rather than just, you know, telling them this is how we're going to do it.
1: So, Drew, learning safe practice. So so we've talked about learning on the job. We talked a lot about tasks just then. We haven't talked so much about learning about safety. And so learning safe practices sort of alongside the, so sort of as part of the task is really important for new young workers. So what does this? what does this mean for learning safe practices? I don't know what
0: impression you got, David, but for me, it seemed like they almost were talking about safe practices and professionalism as if at least for things like the metal trade and the elderly care, they sort of went hand in hand. That safe practice is part of that learning how to do a job properly, that you learn professional standards, you learn professional ways of doing things. And of course, that includes doing the job safely. Um, But the other part of it is... In the paper, they call it learning to risk. And so that's the idea that as well as learning the professional standards, you also sort of learn where the envelope is. You you learn what's reasonable because a young worker in a new environment, everything is new, everything is uncertain. You don't know what you're allowed to do. You don't know what you're allowed to do. You don't know what is safe. You don't know what is unsafe. And so learning to risk is about learning what to be comfortable with. And they refer a lot in the paper to things like Uh, Diane Vaughan's normalization of deviance, because learning to risk can, of course, be learning a totally incorrect calibration. It can be learning that something that people outside the industry might think is objectively unsafe, you just learn that that's normal, because that's what everyone else is doing and accepting.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Drew. And I also referred to uh, Rasmussen's uh, dynamic risk model as well. So really this idea of understanding, as we might say, and we we might say again later in the episode about work as done. So how do I, how do I take this sort of workers imagined view that might be communicated to me in my prior training or trade training in the case of say the metal industry or uh, what I've learned at, 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 college, what I get told in my safety induction and what I see the workers on my first day doing when I'm actually on the tools. So Drew, let's run through each industry and, and talk about what was, what was found and, and done in some of those different industries. Should we start with metal work?
0: Okay. Would you like to take us through it, David? Or? Yeah.
1: Let's start. Um, so, one of the things is that they sort of looked at the context of these industries and also the young, uh, new workers. And typically, in in this industry, the younger workers are typically apprentices or they're other skilled workers, and and they've had some formal training in the work uh, and what to expect in the workplace and and how to how to manage um, the tasks that they'll be expected to perform. Um, they're typically working full time. And um, overall, when they get into that workplace as a young worker, only a small proportion of the workforce are young. So, you know, this study quoted that, you know, maybe only around 10% of the workforce is under 30. So there's this general assumption that the workers already understood safety because they've had some of this formal training and education. And so their focus was on was to sort of watch and learn, you know, the, the specific technical skills of this job. So sort of put these people straight to work under the, under the guidance of others. Yeah, Dev, Just
0: a slight correction, because the authors are fairly emphatic about this, that there's a difference between on-the-job training, where you go in and you start working under supervision, and the sort of more gradual process, where you start off just shadowing an existing worker, and you watch the existing worker and what they do, and then gradually they sort of hand off tasks to you as you become familiar and competent with them. So a lot of these apprentices are just sort of like standing behind the worker doing the work. On their first few days, they're not allowed to touch the tools themselves until they can sort of like demonstrate that they have been exposed to all the things they're supposed to do and answered the right questions, and then they're allowed to have a go themselves under supervision.
1: Thanks for the clarification, Drew. Kind of like the story of the apprentice hairdresser that spends the first twelve months sweeping the hair off the floor before they get given the scissors to cut someone's hair.
0: Yeah, that did exactly. And so the the. There are a few different stories. Some of them sort of like seem very safety-minded. Some of them seem very unsafety-minded. You know, there's one quote that I really liked that they're talking about someone using a grinder and the apprentice says, I've used it a thousand times at school, but they tell me anyway. Be sure not to wear a t-shirt that can melt or remember your glasses. You know, I know all this, but they just remind me briefly anyway. So the like senior people are showing the work and just like constantly telling the junior people, this is how to do it. This is how to be safe about it.
1: Andrew, the, the example then of kind of like reminding the uh, the new worker of these safety requirements and then uh, paper goes on to cite another example of a worker drilling a hole in stainless steel while the apprentice, like you mentioned, is watching how they work. And the worker is explaining, I assume, a whole lot about the task as well as the danger of nanoparticles and other things. But at the same time, this experienced worker is not wearing a mask, not wearing safety glasses, not wearing gloves, not using any any extraction ventilation. So the apprentice is kind of doing all this, or the new worker is doing all this reconciliation of, you know, what do I do? What's important? What's, what should I accept? And, and how should I work?
0: Yeah, and the paper's got quite a good way of sort of explaining that because you know, it would be easy to just be cynical that the senior worker is saying, you know, do as I say, don't do as I do. But it seems to be more that there's this understanding that we all know what the proper standard is. Um, so the proper standard is what the apprentices have been taught and the proper standard is what the worker is reinforcing while the apprentice is watching. But there's also an understanding that the way we do work isn't quite up to that proper standard. Um, you know, The worker themselves say, oh, yeah, we're a bit slack about ventilation around here. It's sort of acknowledgement that you're not expected to always live up to the standard. And so the apprentice learns both. They learn what good looks like and they also learn that it's okay not to be always good.
1: So, Drew, let's look through... Let's let's move on if it's okay. Let's move on to retail. Oops, sorry. Let's move on to the elderly, the aged care industry. So this is elderly care, aged care, and generally, this the work in this sector is. Uh, You've used the term low status work, Drew. Is that I don't want to miss sort of represent this. Is that your your term, or is that from the paper?
0: Uh, so so that's directly from the paper, and and the, I think they're trying to give the impression that very often the workers in this sector are temporary and contingent. Uh, there's a lot of immigrant work. But the young workers sort of buck that trend a little bit. The young workers tend to be skilled. They tend to be people like social workers and health workers and nurses who've got like really university-level training. But they're also a bit unskilled in the sense that they come into this workplace sometimes as students or they come in and they've had all of the university education but they haven't had any practical training yet. So they haven't had lots of
1: encounters directly with patients. So Drew, in this sector, the, the researchers observed more formalised induction processes. So they had even some specific courses related to tasks and um, how to perform task safety, like how to move patients. Uh, so a specific you know, section of the induction training or course on how to move patients, um, as well as sort of peer-to-peer training and, and you know, working under close supervision. So workers were not expected to have a lot of prior knowledge in how to deal with patients or even how to do this task. Uh, so there was lots of reflecting, explaining, discussion. So, like you said earlier, in the in the healthcare setting, the experienced worker would talk to the new worker uh, about the patient before they would go both walk into the uh, to the resident or the patient's room together. Then they would go about doing their work. I assume while the younger new worker observed. Then afterwards, when they left the room, they would debrief about you know the experienced worker, what decisions you know were made, you know why were they made that way. And lots of formal reference to um, being maybe an allied healthcare profession, formal references to professional practices and standards.
0: So th- this, this is not a universal picture. This is sort of like the most common, but th- they do mention that the more temporary and unskilled the worker is, the less of this happens. So everyone gets training, but the person who is already very skilled is going to get more training. The people who is already very unskilled is going to get less training and is getting to get thrown into doing the work much quicker. So the more temporary unskilled workers uh, they very quickly find themselves working by themselves, doing hands-on work with a lot of uncertainty about the way to do things. The university students get lots of handhelding for a long period of time. And sort of ex- there's investment in their future skills and their future contribution. Rather than immediately expecting them to be doing work independently.
1: So, Drew, the third industry was retail. Um, apparently, an industry that both you and I have some personal experience in, which is which is nice. So, retail. Uh, most workers are young workers. I expect as you and I were when we participated in this uh, in this industry. Most of the young workers are unskilled. Uh, part-time, casual type of arrangements, and perform a wide variety of tasks uh, within this particular sector. You talked about collecting trolleys. I talked about putting things on shelves. Lots of lots of different different work activities. So similar in some ways to the other industries that we've talked about, but rather than sort of a watch and learn type approach early on, in this industry it seemed to be more of a hands-on helping out with the person they're shadowing. So. It may be a standard reason that if, if, if you're there on your first day and you're learning how to stack shelves as I was when I started, I didn't sort of get the luxury of standing there for three weeks or so just watching someone stack shelves. It was like, you know, this is how you open the box now. Help me put these things on the shelves so we can get the work done twice as fast. So the person who might be doing the training may not be very experienced. I think in this study, they said that there was a young worker and they were being shown what to do by another worker who'd been there for one week. Sometimes the experienced person may not actually be that experienced.
0: Yeah, To be honest, David, I was reading through some of these stories about retail and the stories that are appearing in academic study, I'm pretty sure I've seen similar stories appear in prosecutions of construction workplaces.
1: Yeah, so so look, the amount of instruction varies between stores and obviously between different different retail settings, and even in this study, the the couple of different workplaces that the researchers were in, you know, in in a different store, for example, there was a much more formal process where managers were explaining the task and giving detailed instructions, coming back to check afterwards about that individual task before sort of briefing, explaining, and assigning the next job. Uh, so so varying different sort of levels of responsibility were sort of given to workers depending on how experienced they were, whereas some of the other settings were just a more of a sort of get in and do the work alongside me.
0: Yeah, they, they suggested in the paper that this might have something to do with whether it was a discount store or not. They sort of suggested that the traditional supermarkets tended to be better and the discount stores worse, but the sample size is small enough that you know, I'd be willing to believe it's actually just that one store had a really good manager who was good at inducting employees in another store didn't.
1: So Drew, let's let's talk just make some general general comments, um, some general discussion comments and then some some practical activities. So so what, what could we draw out generally from these three industries and and the findings from each?
0: So, so I guess the first thing they say is that in both the metal work and in the aged care, there's a gap between the professional or you know, what's considered safe standards and the normalized way work happens. Um, they don't specifically use the term safety as imagined versus safety as done or work as imagined versus work as done, but it's a fairly similar sort of concept. And the idea is that the induction process sort of straddles across the two things. It's the induction process that provides you with reinforcing the professional and safe standards. It's also the induction process where you get to see what work is actually like that almost filters that knowledge and lets you abandon or at least set aside some of the professional standards.
1: And I don't think we're also clear, Drew, that um is the is the safety briefing or the safety induction or the safety training provided at the start of employment, is that the minimum standard? Is that the expected standard? Is that the aspirational standard? So I'm not sure we're we're always clear with our workers when we say that this is workers at safety as imagined. We sort of don't know, you know, at what level that imagining is. Yeah,
0: uh, for, from what I've seen of inductions ever since, there are often sort of hints that what you're being given is not 100% believed by the person who's delivering it. But then sometimes there are also hints that what you're being given is like the absolute minimum standard. Like inductions frequently have a you know, 10 golden rules, break any of these rules and you'll be fired. So it's quite a mixed message about whether the standard is the bottom or the top.
1: So Drew, that's the, that's, we just sort of talked about induction and then uh, workers actually then just go and join, a, you know, for want of a better phrase, a community of practice in the workplace. And they get the opportunity to try to understand, you know, what is the reasonable and pragmatic standard for safety that that work group practices sort of day in, day out.
0: And something that they mention a lot throughout the paper, that they use this term community of practice a lot. Um, and it refers not just to the fact that people are doing things, but the fact that people at work are constantly talking about these things. And so they say that, you know, being accepted as a member of this community, being allowed to take part in the discussions, being allowed to debate and argue about what is reasonable and what's not reasonable, that's the sort of key to getting the balance between the professional standard and the accepted standard is because everyone works within that space. And as long as you're part of a community, you're all holding yourself to a sort of reasonable position. So when you step away from that to somewhere like retail, where they don't have the room or space for either the formal professional standards or the community of practice where they're discussing it, then the new workers just, there's just, this is how work is currently done. The workers learn to copy everyone else around them as they see it. Any gaps in what they see become gaps in their knowledge. Any lapse standards they see just become the new normal for them, and so it's really easy for the worker in terms of something like you know Rasmussen's envelope to just work pressure pushes you away from a good standard because there's neither a community nor a sort of professional reinforcement
1: holding you back in the other direction. Andrew, it seems like a similar thing happens to the temporary workers in in. Age care, so there's professional standards and a community of practice, and maybe in some roles in that sector are sort of a bit more like the 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 former story of the metal trades in terms of professional community of practice. But these these temporary roles and temporary workers, they get much less chance to be sort of part of this community because they're sort of quickly thrown into work and they they um, experience it the same way that you've experienced it in retail. And I think we'll come back to this uh, this well, we will come back to this theme in the practical takeaways about sort of temporary. Temporary workers and um, yeah, and how they experienced their early stages of work.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really telling that these workers are inside the same work environment, so they're observing the same normal work as the workers who are being properly inducted, but they're not being given that same opportunity to discuss and talk about it. They're just sort of thrown into doing it, um, and it seems that that opportunity to discuss and debate is sort of really important for stabilising the knowledge.
1: Yeah. So, Drew, we've talked about on-the-job training. And so the paper sort of, there's some general conclusions about the good the, the good and the bad of experiential learning. And there was, this, there was a quote that I recall, not sure who it is, to say that um, practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. And um, do you want to just talk a bit generally about this idea about experiential learning being both good and bad?
0: Yeah, so, so the authors kind of point out that if you learn by experience, what you learn is exactly as good as people are currently doing it. So if people are currently doing it really well, then you learn really well. If people are doing it really badly, you learn really badly. But because it's kind of universal that work practices are never totally living up to the standards, then if you abandon teaching the standards, then all people ever get is this imperfect idea of work. And so that's why it's actually kind of important that you teach people even a standard that no one's living up to. You know, if you're going to expose a new apprentice to the experienced machinist drilling without glasses or mask or ventilation, then you want that pr- apprentice to also have received a bit of an unrealistic briefing and a warning about the dangers of nanoparticles. You know, at least that way the apprentice and the machinist can have a conversation and talk about you know, what the standard's supposed to be and why the machinist isn't doing it. You maybe the machinist has a good reason and the apprentice sort of needs to know what's realistic. Or maybe the machinist is being lazy and by having that conversation, the machinist decides, hey, I'd better be setting a better example and decides to do it differently. Yeah, um, but I if you don't have the formal standard, you never have the opportunity for that conversation.
1: Yeah, I like that reflection, Drew, because uh, because I was sort of thinking about how do we get this, this formal induction to as close as match the work as possible. And we know that work as done will always be variable and will always sort of you know drift and adapt. But the one thing that we maybe can maintain is the formal standards that we communicate in our induction in the hope that creating some of that tension creates discussion you know, and, and reflection within in practice.
0: Yeah, that's one reason I've always been a little bit dubious about the idea of, you know, let's stop having safe work method statements, let's just videotape someone doing the work. Because if you videotape someone doing the work as they actually do it, then you're going to have all of these imperfections built in. And if you videotape them when they're unrealistically doing everything perfectly by the book, then you may as well just have a document that is doing it perfectly by the
1: book yeah there you go so drew let's talk about this gradient towards unsafety so there's this suggestion we just talked about work as done that people you know doing real work every day have found this balance between you know other con- resource constraints production pressure safety and sometimes we call this practical drift or so new workers you know they don't make that trade they don't make that trade-off for themselves they sort of just adapt to fit in with the existing balance of work
0: yeah, I, th- I thought that was an interesting claim. They don't have strong evidence for it, but it kind of makes sense. So you know on balance work is a trade-off between production pressure and safety, but new people don't know how how to make that trade-off. They don't know what they don't even feel the production pressure because they're too junior. They don't know the safety because they haven't been there. So they just sort of calibrate themselves to where everyone else is already sitting at the balance. but if 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 you don't have that induction process, you don't have that chance to calibrate with everyone else, Then the new worker does actually have to make the trade off. They need to sort of balance the demands of the job they've been thrown into along with the training that they've been given about what safe looks like. And they're making trade offs for themselves about what bits of safety they can and can't follow, what's reasonable, what's not reasonable. And that's where you see young workers taking really silly risks just because they don't know that they're, you know, they don't have more experienced workers to compare themselves to. They don't know what sort of risks are acceptable, what sort of risks are silly.
1: So, Drew, I, I tend to like a good paradox. I think the world's full of them. The last point we've got here before we jump into pa- practical takeaways is this idea of the paradox of unskilled workers. Uh, can you explain that to us?
0: Yeah, this just seems so obvious and so unfair that if you're a worker who already has skills, you've already had years of training, years of practice, years of knowing what is safe, you arrive in the workplace and you're treated as a valuable commodity, where you're given a longer induction process and more opportunity to learn to the point where the apprentices are complaining that you know, they've already done it a thousand times and they're still being told the safe way to do it. But then you come in as an unskilled labor, you've been given no training, no understanding what's safe. You're not treated as valuable, you're treated only as a source of labor, which means you have to get be put to work straight away or we're not getting any value out of it. So the people who haven't received any training don't get any training. People who've had lots of training get perhaps
1: too much training. Yeah, Drew, I think, um, I think that's a really useful reflection and a great segue for us into practical takeaways. So let's um, let's help our listeners with some of the things that we think might be, might, be, might be useful for them to take away.
0: So, David, I haven't actually checked these with you, so feel free to disagree if you take different things okay. from me. But the first thing that I really noticed from this is that the paper draws a direct link between employment practices and safety. The paper hardly talks at all, apart from that one example about ventilation. It doesn't really talk about risks or exactly what the safety standards are, but it really shows that when we treat workers as immediate and temporary sources of labor, rather than as people joining our team, then they're going to be less safe. And not just they're going to be less safe, but they're going to be creating an environment where safety is all about just getting the work done under pressure rather than an environment where people are trying to maintain and uphold professional standards. And that just really drove home to me that when we talk about, not about how we treat subcontractors, but just the decision to do subcontracting or the decision to hire short-term labor or the decision to put someone on a six-month contract instead of a two-year contract, that's actually a really important safety decision and it's the type of decision that safety managers need to get involved in if they're going to have control over the environment people are working and learning in.
1: So, Drew, I, did, I, do, I do agree with that. I think it's um, onboarding. And what we're talking about here is onboarding a person into the workplace is an investment in the person. So, people are, are maybe likely to invest more if there's more return. So, if you think of an apprentice and, and a workplace thinking they've got this person there for four years and and so let's let's really invest in, in the training and the onboarding of this person. Maybe different if the person's there for a day or, or a week. So I, I think you're right. I think, I think we should be really aware of where we've got short-term employment arrangements, uh, where we're putting people to work, to putting people to productive work quickly, and um, how confident we are in their onboarding.
0: Yeah, but I think it goes further than that. I think you know just the decision that we're only going to have someone there for a day or a week. That is itself almost a form of safety compromise. You know, there are obviously times when it is absolutely necessary to do that. But there are also times when we just sort of slip into employment practices. Um, And one thing I'd note is that in Australia, we've got this shift away from using apprentices, a shift away from apprenticeship programs towards labour hire. Um, And I think we really do see the cost in quality of work and safety of young workers when we make those sort of market shifts in the way we are willing
1: to treat young people? Yeah, through um I think good good expansion of that of that practical takeaway. So through reflective practice, second practical takeaway. So reflective practice is part of what holds professional standards and normalized work close to each other. So if we if we think about how the professional standard around our task and then how work happens and we reflect on that and reflect on that against the professional standard, then it try then it, it probably goes away towards keeping um, the practice uh, uh, close to the standard. So some occupations like medicine and teaching and others, but also some trades, I suppose, um, particularly where apprentices are still working effectively. Um, this this reflective practice seems to uh, seems to sort of really help.
0: Yeah. And you know, it appears from this paper that at least in Denmark, aged care certainly falls into that type of industry where they're doing a really good job of the reflective practice. And I think it's something that maybe all Good supervisors do, or at least should do, but that we tend to overlook it a bit in how we select and train our supervisors. And we don't you know, sort of like ask, is this person good at mentoring young people, at asking the rhetorical questions, at getting people to you know, talk aloud about their decision making. Whereas having people who are like really good at that process, having the experienced machinist who can't just do the job, but can also talk about it while they're doing it and explain why they're doing it, and Give the apprentice tips while they're doing it, who's willing to sort of step away from the tool and let the apprentice have a go and then take back over. People with that sort of patience and communication skills are really important when it comes to safety.
1: I like that, Drew. I think actually, you know, something that I probably never thought of to actually look closely at, you know, we look closely as safety professionals at the professional standards or the, or the formal inductions, but I don't recall spending too much time in my career actually going and actually seeing out, you know, what do the first two or three weeks of someone's role look like when they first start, you know, a position in my organisation? What is the quality of that reflective practice? Who is the person who's discussing the work with them, watching them and providing that space to to talk about how it gets done? So I think that's a great takeaway, Drew, for, for all people to listen and go, do you know how that uh, that first few weeks is experienced by your, your new workers. Oh, I, I love
0: that as both a takeaway and a homework assignment for the listeners.
1: Third takeaway, take off you go.
0: Oh, well, I think I think it's fourth after you've inserted that one about go and look at oh, okay. how people experience the first week. But you know, I think the other one is just we need to check carefully who does and doesn't get that full induction process. So, are there particular roles that get lots of induction? you know lots of organisations for example are very good at their graduate programmes they take the graduates on board very carefully and slowly and you know, who in our organisation doesn't get that who gets pushed straight into the learn by doing instead of the watch and learn and does that difference in induction match up where the serious risks are are the people who are going to be at most risk getting the most careful induction or are we in fact letting some people sort of in very quickly into risky situations
1: Yeah, great. Great thought, Drew. So, are your formal and informal induction and onboarding processes aligned to your safety risk profile of the different roles within your organisation is a great takeaway. So, Drew, I'm going to ask you um, the question since I've got the microphone now, so I'm going to ask you. The question we asked this week was, how do new employees learn about safety? Um, So, from this paper, there's
0: a formal induction process designed by the organisation, and there's a practical experiential induction into the way work actually happens. And messages in the formal process are going to get filtered and modified based on workers' early experiences. So that's going to work really well where both processes are happening. We have both the formal and the informal, and particularly where we have an existing community of reflective practice. So people not just doing work, but people talking about work, discussing, arguing, debating, making collaborative decisions about work and inducting people into that community, not just into the practicalities of doing the work.
1: Thanks, Drew. That's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Look out for the episode and the comments on LinkedIn and send any questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com.